Okay, welcome more to come listeners to another episode of Stargazing. And uh, it's going to be me, uh, Calvin Reed, Senior News Editor of Publishers Weekly. And I'll be talking with the PW Graphic Novels Reviews Editor, Meg Limke. Meg, uh, how you doing? I'm doing well. I'm ex- really excited because we've had a bit of a break in the heady COVID summer. And now you and I get to chat about comics again. And we are going to do three books today. Great, great. And um, a bonus from my usual two, and then I will get back on again soon and catch up everybody with what else is coming for the fall. Sounds great. All right, so what do we got? What are we going to lead off with? Oh, but so you know what? Before we get started, just a quick reminder to uh, you know our listeners, uh, just what stargazing is. So stargazing is the segment of the More to Come podcast where Calvin and I talk about some of the books that have received starred reviews in Publishers Weekly. That's a designation that means a book is particularly notable and particularly well done, and it really tells our audience of booksellers, librarians, general readers that they need to pay attention. Sounds good to me. All right, so what's what are we leading off with? So I really wanted to kind of call back to a book that came out in May, and it was just before our summer, that was nothing like the summer any of us expected. Yes, that's for sure. But it's just a lovely book. It's called Nori. Mm-hmm. It's published by Drawn and Quarterly. And um, Rumi Hara is a Kyoto-born Brooklyn-based cartoonist. It's a, it's a debut. And it's just a sweet book that's light, but gets into more complex issues about society and intergenerational relationships and intergenerational mm-hmm. um, love and how wisdom gets passed down. And it's it's something that I think people shouldn't miss. You know, mm-hmm. it's a book, I don't know, you know, what, how, what, how it's done in terms of sales, but it's one that I think with everything going on, it offers some lightness that we could all use right now. And the story follows a little girl, Nori, Noriko mm-hmm. um, Muski, who's this mischievous preschooler yes. <laughs> in 1980s suburban Japan, whose grandmother takes care of her mm-hmm. uh, while her parents work. And there's this, this bit that's really lovely about how the grandmother just can't quite keep up with her. You know, Nori is a sneaky <laughs> and she's <laughs> continually escaping her grandmother and the reviewer in particular um, shared with me that one thing that she loved about this is it's a real blending of styles, you know, from a Japanese to an American contemporary indie style. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, it, it feels very much Mihari's own work. Like she's a really recognizable look. And that the, the immersion in the work of a preschooler's world eye view is, is complete. So there's this sort of lovely blending and blurring of fantasy and real. So she'll follow a rabbit and there's just this, this way in which you sort of see magical things happening around the corner. And then in the larger storyline, some really, you know, there's a series of link shorts, you know, it's not like a big plotted piece, but there is something really interesting happening where you see the older generation and the post war effect mm-hmm. how they're interacting with this, the younger generation. I mean, that's really embedded in, in between the lines or between the panels, as we might say, in the fact that the grandmother is taking care of her for the sort of busy post-war generation mm-hmm. of the working parents in the 80s. 
Mm-hmm. And then also there's this scene, which maybe you want to chat about because it was one of the most memorable bits for you, where just basically randomly at a street fair uh, or carnival, community carnival, um, they win an award to go fly to Hawaii and like yeah. represent the village. And it's sort of bound up in this idea of like pride and showing like a post-war recovery. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And then they go to Hawaii and that's like a whole kind of sideline and they go to Hawaii and the grandmother's really, she's never, she's never been on a plane, I think before. I can't remember if that's the scene, but there's yeah, definitely. Yeah. Say that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and that really takes you out of the immediacy of this, of this little world of Nori's and you sort of see how this is about kind of larger cultural shifts in Japan and its relationship to the world at the time. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because I mean, it really uh, seems uh, more like American indie comics in many cases. Mm -hmm. Now I know there is a sort of parallel um, native Japanese equivalent in in many cases to uh you know the the indie comic style the you know the broad broadly stated that i'm talking about but i found it very interesting too uh and that section where they travel is very interesting because of the things in particular i mean i mean nori is 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 a charming i'm trying i'm trying to think of an american comics kind of a equivalent i don't i don't know if it would be nancy i guess that's probably not not um <clears throat> Not a good good connection, but um, uh, it, it, as sweet as the book is, uh, you know, uh, Nori can be unpredictable, <laughs> to she's say like the a least. Catherine Hobbs, you know, like she's like an early. That, maybe that's you know what that's a better that's a good point that's a better uh, connection than what I was coming up with because uh, it, 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 just when you think it's gotten to be a little too sweet, mm. you know. Uh, she shows that she's not just a you know she's not just a goody two shoes. He's kind of trouble in in some ways. Um, but but really, the insights that we get into the grandmother's life uh, in wartime Japan that's really fascinating. And 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 I didn't expect to see it. So that that's sort of kind of the the surprise element of the, the characterizations that come through in the book. There's so much here also reading it in the current context, mm-hmm. right? Our immersion in COVID and separation for many people from their elders, you know, it's really about the bond of a grandchild mm-hmm. and parent, which is not possible for many families right sure. now, given separation between generations. Um, and then in other cases, people are living in interracial households, like the, the way to get, this is off the book page and maybe more than we can get into, but you kind of either have this intense connection of an interracial households coming up right now or complete separation. And so either way, like it speaks to readers in a different way. And then it's also just really in so many ways about the lightness of a child's world dealing with parents and grandparents who are coming out of trauma. Mm-hmm. So there's so much there that sort of gives us a glimpse of a possible future where we may come out of this and be able to kind of see how children are still able just to move through the world mm-hmm. uh, with a sense of, curiosity and wonder um here's a line from the review you know hara always returns to nori's private world masterfully immersing the reader in a small child's perception cramming panels with richard scary like ramshackle houses and busy gardens irresistible fantasy sequences and details like an ice cream advertisement fish swimming in a tidal pool a preschooler that a preschooler would light on okay and that I, came out in may so you know <laughs> it's something to catch up on uh, and then we're going to move to much weightier material, 
Um, we have two books actually we want to talk about that look at native issues, um, indigenous people and native issues. And one is from the great Joe Sacco called paying the land. Yes. And that came out, um, in July, you know, Yes, it did. You know, it did. Uh, yeah, they pushed it back a little bit because originally it was originally a May book, but yeah, it, it did come out it came in July. Out this summer, but it really, I think, should be making like a fall landing. Like it was again, like another kind of COVID move around on pub dates. It's really like a big, heady fall book. Yes. Um, and it's Metropolitan published it. They've been doing some great work. Yeah. They, and they've published him for a number of years now. They have, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's much like his other work. You know, he takes. He, it's comic journalism. He goes yes. and embeds himself in um, a conflict. And in fact, we did a lo- like an interview on the website, not not like an interview, we did an interview <laughs> on the site with Shane and Garrity did the interview. Um, and she asked him, you know, you've traveled to war zones for Palestine, Seferi Grajda. How did it compare? Um, he went to uh, Northern Ontario and situated himself with the Dene who are indigenous people and spoke to them about issues around fracking and what the different perspectives were on conflict around fracking in the area. And, um, Sackle says, you know, he wanted to get away from war zones, but he mm-hmm. found that you can't get away from conflict. He said, let's just say that whatever I knew about Canadian history, the consequences of colonialism, colonialism really hit me. There's violence yeah. that involves gun, and then there's a violence that involves residential schooling. It was a real uh, education. Yes, yes. And so what I, he, yeah, go ahead. No, I, I just want to jump in and say that that uh, in addition to the uh, the 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 text uh, interview that you that you mentioned, the print interview, you know, mm-hmm. I did a deep dive uh, podcast interview with with mm-hmm. Joe also. So um, you know, feel free to go to the more to come web publishersweekly dot com slash comics. Uh, and click through to our archive and you can find it. Um, but, uh, yeah, this is, this is deep dive journalism, uh, in the manner that, you know, Joe Sacco has shown up. So with books like Safe Air Garage and, um, uh, uh, Palestine and, uh, and The Fixer, which I love. And The Those Fixer and really pick any of his really extraordinary works of, of, uh, of, Deep dive uh, uh, nonfiction, and uh, and he talks about how he was trying to get away from conflict. He was actually looking, uh, he was actually to look up do a book on climate change, mm-hmm. um, and uh, but then as it turned out, um, when he got because the, the Diné people and other um, uh, indigenous people of Canada, I mean, we're talking near the Arctic Circle. Uh, vast, breathtakingly beautiful, uh, natural, um, uh, landscapes, uh, of mountains, lakes, uh, um, that also, uh, are full of incredible mineral deposits. And mm-hmm. that's something we can talk about later too. Um, but of course, uh, uh, in these lands, in these, these vast natural, these gorgeous, majestic landscapes, these are the places where, you know, global warming is, in fact, you know, hammering home uh, um, as we speak. So he, he, he got a bit of a twofer, uh, twofer. Once again, he has embedded himself in a group of people who, that are really under threat in some ways uh, are, are trying to emerge from hundreds of years of oppression 
into the into uh, uh, you know the modern uh, a modern non-colonial world. Uh, uh, they're uh, so they're that as they um, and as they emerge, they've got to deal with every twentieth twenty-first century problem they may or may not be prepared to deal with. So. This is just sort of to to, out, to lay out the, uh, the, uh, the landscape of the book. There's a lot in the book. And one oh. thing that actually in terms of the like nuts and bolts of, of editing the review mm-hmm. is you don't have a central char- character other than Joe. It's more that he goes to many different people who represent different aspects of Dene society, um, including folks who are more um, – ingrained in the older way of Dene life, which is a nomadic um, existence where sort of there's migratory patterns through the land and they don't have a one consistent place that there are through um, the whole year, but like seasonal landing spots. Mm. And, and then he also speaks to people who have moved into cities. He speaks to tribal leaders. He speaks to people who are in different and mm. oppositional um, relationships in tribal um, conflicts. But at the same time, it's not um, conflicts isn't even the right word necessarily in that term. It's more about, sorry, in that in this book, it's more about, negotiations almost. I mean, this is one of the issues of entering into a completely different culture, um, which Joe Sacco has done so well. Um, the reviewer notes also, he's a little bit, he's a little bit less kind of like examining what his role is as a journalist uh, in the past. I think he's done a little bit more like kind of not navel gazing, but just like thinking about that. And here he just really lets the, um, the people, their voices carry. And so there's a lot of close-up portraits of faces as well as the landscape. And he has such a detailed and recognizable style, and it's so painstaking. You know what I mean? There's just the care and respect he gives every person, every face, every moment in the book, and just the incredible amount of detail is so beautiful. Um, and then, as he mentioned in the interview, the, 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 the residential schoolings and the practice of tearing apart families and keeping children from speaking their language and this completely racist attempt to, um, quote-unquote, modernize um, the population, and it's it's intergenerational trauma that it's created and just a complete breaking up of cultural ties. It, it comes up almost immediately in terms of how the um, relationship between fracking and industry and the culture um, comes to bear. And it's, it's just a very well done look at an incredibly complex issue. Um, and we'd be remiss to mention that we didn't actually talk about a book that also came out earlier in um, February. No, April, sorry, April, Oak Flat by Lauren Redness. She mm-hmm. actually also looked at um, sacred land and fracking in Arizona's Copper Corridor uh, and the Apache. But this, I mean, that book in particular, if I'm not mistaken, is about a long-running dispute over a massive copper mine that may or may not be, be done that uh, involved uh, the Obama administration and many others before, before it. Um, I don't know what the um, – the current state of the legality around it. But um, yes, this is another. And in fact, this is an interesting connection with what's going on in paying the land. Because right. just as you mentioned, uh, how uh, he talks with every part. I mean, he seems to talk with virtually every uh, every section and category uh, of Native society, the Dene people in particular, but other, but some of the other uh, Native peoples uh there and their whole approach 
to dealing with this, I mean, it's going to span the whole range of issues. I mean, right. there's one, uh, you know, uh, one chief, elect, elected chief, who is all about uh, exploiting uh, the mineral deposits to create wealth uh, and to wean his people off of government assistance. Right. Well, of course, yes. You know, like, and there's, and there's, he speaks to young men in particular who are very keen to have industry, who are keen to have um, jobs and that jobs are going to come to the Dene and not come to outsiders coming in. It's a very complex issue. It's not one-sided. No, it's not. And, And at the same time, um, there is, of course, this sense of we have to, I mean, the land is what has sustained us. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, we, you know, we can't defile it. Um, uh, our, the native way of, of living is slowly disappearing, as well as there is a generation of young people who simply uh, are not used to it. Uh, it's right. a very That's tough life. And older generations also who have no desire to go back to that life. So it's it, he really manages to look at this situation in a complex way, and also to talk about the the, the problems that modern life have inflicted on, and including um, uh, domestic abuse, alcoholism. I mean, it's it's a really and and I, and this isn't to paint a, a demoralized por- portrait of these communities, but it is a complex portrait of these communities, the landscape. And, um, and an incredible sense, uh, he, he does, he does a really great job of really giving you the historical context and bringing you forward. It, it really is an extraordinary book. And we have to talk about his drawings because he, if you look at these books, there's no grid. There are no, very often there are no panels. And yet these incredibly detailed drawings, they breathe. They move. You can follow him. They send you on a narrative path. He, mm. he he's really at the top of his game. Um, and, and and you really can't compare his page layouts to anyone else. Yeah, they're they're like these full, these kind of like you know Renaissance style paint the ceiling page layouts where you have the action happening is a huge cinematic crowd scene, and then you move into individual not you know his talking head interviews on the page are like nobody else's you know yeah. he has so much going on with the facial expressions and the choice quotes he's taken from much longer in-depth interviews um and looking at as a leader like with, with oak flat you know that work from redness she also is an oral history like um that she's providing so hers is is, is drawings with long sections of interviews with um people invested in it, including like a young uh, woman who, um, her long testimony to Congress. Mm-hmm. So. so I think, I think there's a really interesting way that those books, I mean, his is set in, in uh, Canada. This is set in the U S there's a, there's so much coming to a head right now over territorial disputes and climate change and a culture that has been abused for generations. Um, that's global, you know, in these, with these two connections. And so I think there's some, there's so much going on right now. And these books should really not be lost in this period. Um, I love Sacco. I mean, just to oh, a little while, he's absolutely one of my top beloved creators in this. In, and so to get to even have any hands on a review of his book has been like a complete honor. It's a beautiful book. Yeah, no, it, it, it really is an extraordinary book. Uh, and, and and you really have to look at these pages to believe it. They're crammed with information, but they never seem crowded. 
Mm-hmm. There, there. Every page is different, yet you seem to always know where your eye should start and how to follow the narrative. Mm-hmm. There, in some ways, there are multiple ways to do it. Um, uh, I mean, his black and white drawing. I mean, I mean, I, I'd have to compare him to R. Crumb, just in his ability uh, to use cross hatching and black and white shadings. Uh, uh, and, and to create and to create a feeling that almost feels, you know, like color. I mean, these drawings are just full. Um, you know, okay, I'm gushing, so I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> I I wanted to also say, in terms of you were basically indicating it's not a demoralizing portrait, and in fact, it's the opposite. It's a portrait of leaders. It's really yes. about mm-hmm. who. Good point. Who are emerging as leaders in the community and then getting in in a nuanced way uh, to how they differ in their perspective and the action they've taken and what their life story has been that informed the way that they they proceed in terms of their relationship to the land and to the and to the issue of fracking and how they and how they respond to all of these issues we've been talking about here. Yeah, no, it, it's uh, uh, you know every Joe Sacco book is an event and and really paying the land um, is no different. So we want to continue on the theme of um, highlighting Native voices. The, the two books we just spoke about were non-Native journalistic approaches to Native communities. And then I am really excited about this debut um, from Jim Terry, who is a Native artist uh, and writer. So this is a written and drawn memoir um, called Come Home Indio. And it's also coming from a new publisher, Street Noise, who this is the, their debut fall uh, list. They had a, they had some books out in the spring, and then this is their big debut for the fall. Um, and really blown away by the ambition of this book and the artistry with which Terry carries it through. Um, he is writing about his life story and what happened to him and where he got. And it's really kind of one of those books where somebody says, like, I'm going to tell everything straight, like really just there's a vulnerability to it. He is um, an artist who had a difficult childhood, but there was also like so much beauty and connection to his childhood, but he had his parents divorced. His father um, is Irish American. He's a white dad and a native mother. Um, his, his mother is Ho-Chunk and her family and tribe are in the Wisconsin Dells. And in his in his youth, um, in a, in a divorced family, he goes between these two communities. Um, so a lot of the work is about that, that story about not belonging, you know, in either place. And it's about what it means to be seen as native in the white community and seen as an outsider in the native community. Um, and then again, this, this issue of, um, alcohol and alcoholism within the native community, as well as in the Irish community, both his parents have issues with drinking. His dad gets sober. Um, his mother does not, and she ultimately dies in the work. And there's a lot around that. Um, and he has a long, grim, drawn out battle with his own addictions. Um, in many ways, this is a book about finding sobriety and finding spiritual connection, but it's just as much about becoming an artist, you know, what his influences mm-hmm. were. He works with um, James O'Barr, who does The Crow, and you can really see the influence of his mm-hmm. art uh, mm-hmm. in the kind of detailed, again, like really, mm-hmm. we're just back to like mm-hmm. the he mentions art. He mentions Eisner too, I believe, which, which, yeah, which, which uh, I don't think is really powerful, but is there. I do believe yeah. it's there. 
But you're, you're right. This is a really, I mean, this is, I mean, it, it, it sounds like a cliche, the raw, you know, personal investigation, but really that's what this book is. It's really, uh, startlingly honest. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, uh, uh, startlingly, uh, clear, unblinking, all of the, all of the stuff you use when people, you know, really stare into some emotional abyss and share it. Um, uh, but it's also kind of, um, you know, uh, you, you can't really put it down. You really, and, and not for uh, the pain which is there, but just his, um, I just think his masterful, in my view, his masterful uh, ability to, to create comics out of uh, a, a history of pain and and searching for you know some some sense of being some sense of peace uh um through this this alcoholism this functionality um it, it's it's a remarkable book i mean it really is the cartooning is beautiful in my opinion um, i think the cartooning's fantastic and you just really see how he put his whole heart and self into this work. Unreservedly. Um, Very ambitious book. Though I think, and we noted this in the review, something I found really interesting and, you know, I don't, haven't gotten to interview him myself, but he does, he does take a lot of care, particularly with the romantic relationships and Mm -hmm. how he relays them in the work. Mm -hmm. He has a marriage that he talks about really with brevity that um, broke up and he silhouettes his ex-wife. And I get the sense that this is like a respectful choice yeah you know yeah. to say essentially like this was a marriage i had while i was an addict i'm not airing these secrets yeah. you know yeah. whereas and in comparison he has a relationship in his youth that he's looking back on of the different kind of like it's a teenage love and he goes mm-hmm. into that in greater depth and that looks at again this idea of culture conflict it's a white girl that he is a white christian family and he is exploring the ways that that attachment and their um their early love, you know, what that meant for him, um, going, moving between two communities and understanding like issues with prejudice around that relationship. Um, then we would be remiss on to talk about what really, where this all comes together, which is again, it goes back to activism and, um, and territorial disputes in the land and the, the sacred uh, nature of the land for the native community, because he is a complete stylistic section shift where he goes to the pipeline mm-hmm. um, and the Standing Rock pipeline and he immerses himself in the activist community there and has something of a revelation about his, his connection and his, you know, basically like finding himself as a native person in that connection. And he totally changes. He doesn't do traditional tuning in those sections. He does long pieces of text mm-hmm. with very thoughtful portraits that are not like necessarily full page. And I think that was a very uh, deliberative um, decision not to try to render those sacred. And uh, I'll add, I mean, uh, pages of kind of of hand lettered text too, that, Mm. that sort of even on the pages text seem to be freighted with intense emotion. I mean, whether you read the words or not, actually just looking at the text sort of, you know, put you on notice that you're moving through some transition. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also just a lot about the characters and the relationships that are just beautifully done. You know, he, t- he t- spends a lot of time on his relationship with his sister. Mm-hmm. Um, again, with um, James O'Barr, you just see 
somebody looking back and thinking about the, you know, the transformative relationships in their life while, while trying to kind of grapple with these larger questions of identity in place. Um, the reviewer ends, you know, reckoning with sobriety requires connection and humility. And Terry makes a case for both with sincerity and beauty as he ties his recovery to his spiritual homecoming. And, and if I may, I just I just want to jump back to his cartooning for a second because it it really he really has a great uh, and um, engaging and expressive line to his cartoon. Yeah. It reminds me, and we talked about really some of the the famous cartoon cartoonists in his work, but. Uh, Weirdly, his work I, really reminds me of the Mad Magazine crew, and I, I don't mean the the zany silliness, though that though that is there. But there's a there's a there's a maniacal quality to the, the, the work of artists like, you know, Mort Drucker or Jack Davis or Dave Berg, and in and their black and white um, um, line. And he seems to have that, you know, though he's not telling jokes, though he can be kind of you know. He can be funny when he wants to, yeah. but he uses that line really to convey pain, emotion, yearning, confusion, and he really is masterful at doing it. I got a little Jaime Hernandez. That's what I – Sure, sure. I, I, you know, the only reason I said it – I mean Jaime's line is kind of quiet in comparison it seems to right, me. Right, Except in certain instances. I mean almost every panel of his of his book – this the, the, the his line work is sort of alive with some powerful sense of, of emotion yeah. or trauma or I mean you know without exaggerating too much um, he really does uh, just kind of electrify the page with his drawings. The reviewer, um, not in the review, but behind the scenes, which I guess is partly what this podcast is about, <laughs> talked to me about how much they really loved the way he drew his mother in particular. Mm. He captures like a body type we don't often see represented, honestly, where there's like um she has long, thin legs and sort of apple shape. Mm -hmm, yes. And it's just not I, I think he really gets the way his mom looks and she's this beautiful woman who has had a difficult experience um but is the center of her family. And she's and she also is is going through um depression and alcoholism and you get very much the way as a child that affects affects Jim Terry and and yet there's just this um uh you know romanticized way but this you can there's an honoring of his mother even in demonstrating some of her darkest moments you know yeah. and if you've ever been a mom who cries in front <laughs> of their kids and is at a dark moment like I just felt those scenes you know it's I can beautiful imagine. I can imagine. He's a beautiful job with that. But he definitely, like, just as an, as one example among other characters, he shows us somebody in a way we haven't always seen portrayed. Yeah. You know, this has been a good year, I think. This has been an amazing year in some ways for graphic memoir. <laughs> yeah, it really has. There's just really just been an, an enormous number of really powerful books. So, anyway. Well, I would love to see this book get deserved attention. There is a obvious you know like let's just you know obvious gap in native cartoonists yeah. being published so here is a big book a big ambitious book by a hugely talented um artist and it's coming from a small press it's got a lot of ambition themselves um they're focused on creators of color and queer creators um they also put out um Bichek Soms memoir. Mm -hmm. They're trying to do mm -hmm. a lot and I'm really hoping that this book is going to get some great attention. So if you haven't heard of it, please pick it up. Yeah. Yeah. Go buy the books, people.
Thank All right. You. All right. So I think we've left you with a nice basket of titles to, uh, <laughs> to, to read your way into the fall. So, so sounds good. Sounds good, Meg. All right. More to come. Yeah. Let's do this again soon. <laughs>